electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Dan Nathan, Jeff Mills, and James McDonald. Tonight on Fast, the most astounding price action one of our traders has seen in 25 years. We'll tell you what this stock did and why it caught his attention. Plus, we'll be joined by the CEO of one big beneficiary of the work-from-home trend, data center Reed Equinix. But what happens when people start going back to the office? We'll ask him. And don't forget, we've got another bonus hour Fast Money coming up at the top of the hour. So send us your deepest burning trading questions. We'll try and get you some answers. But we start off with two charts moving in two different directions, telling one story. Take a look at the dollar hitting a 52-week low today as measured by the dollar index. Meantime, Bitcoin, a new record high. So what does this say about the market? Guy Adami. Hi, Mel. Hey, Guy. Says the dollar is going to continue to go lower, and you know, I know I've mentioned this before, but Jerome Powell's a huge Fast Money fan, and I know he's watching right now. And I will congratulate him once again as he is <laughs> succeeding in torching the U.S. dollar. And I think the move has just gotten started. Now, the flip side of that coin is a lot of people will say everybody's on this side of the boat. Um, it's too much of a crowded trade. Sometimes the crowd is right. We've seen that in all kinds of things. Dollar goes lower. City wrote a note a month and a half ago saying 20% downside in 2021 is possible. I agree. And we have said this now for months, if not longer, that the place to be continues to be the resource, resource trade. Freeport McMoran, a huge today on top of a huge couple months. Palo Alto's Palo, Pan American Silver uh, back above that 35 level. Newmont Mining above 60. Tim's Rio Tinto didn't go anywhere today, but that's making a multi-year high. So, I think these stocks have moved. I think the move continues on the back of what will continue to be a weaker dollar. I know that fast money traders have a history of enjoying going against the grain, against consensus, Dan Nathan. You are among those traders who have done that in the past. And here we are, everybody and their brother or mother betting against the U.S. dollar. Do you stick with this? Yeah, I, I think to your point, Mel, it's become very much a consensus trade. It's a trade that I've had actually on through UUP puts on a couple different occasions over the course um, of this year. But if you look at that Dixie, the DXY, the U.S. dollar index, I mean, Guy is really pressing this thing here. He's had a great call. He's been a seller on every little rally. He's mentioned that the rallies have become narrower and narrower. There's been bullish narratives for the euro and the British pound, which obviously make up a big percentage of that Dixie. But I think in the near term, your best case scenario is probably about 88. So I think it's a really tough press here. If you had a move in the Dixie back up towards 91, 92, that could be a great level to let out some shorts again. But I think it's really dangerous to press it here. So if we go just to 88, Jeff, let's say we stall uh, on the dollar index at approximately that level. Does that mean that the wind is taken out of the trades that are tied to the dollar, the emerging markets trade, the resource trade, gold, precious metals, etc.? Yeah, I think it might mean that the wind is taken out of those sales in the near term. But I, th I think longer term, the, tr the trend still is lower for the dollar. So the trend still is higher for some of those trades you mentioned. I, I mean, I agree with Dan in the sense that, look, the sentiment is, 
is really negative. So you could very easily get a counter trend rally. But I think that's exactly what it would be. I think it would be a counter trend rally. And then we would resume lower as, as we move through the year. You know, when you're in a situation where M2 money supply is up over 24 percent, where the Fed's balance sheet is increased by 70 percent, I think you have to assume some level of increased inflation next year. I think I've said this before, but the Fed is going to remain behind that curve on purpose. I think they're deathly afraid of killing any increase in inflation they're going to see. So that's going to push real rates further into negative territory here in the U.S. And that's going to make it less attractive for foreign buyers to come in uh, on inflation adjusted basis and own those assets. So I think that continues to pressure the dollar. And then you see moves in emerging markets. You saw them up again today, starting to press that breakout level right around the low 50s, make a move back into the mid 50s that we saw around the financial crisis. And I think that's the trend we see as we move through next year. James McDonald, we started at the top of the show putting the weak chart of the dollar next to the strong chart of Bitcoin. And certainly dollar weakness has helped fuel that Bitcoin rise this year. Are you, do you think that we necessarily need to see continued dollar weakness in order to see Bitcoin continue higher? Not at all. And uh, the case has been made for both the fundamental weakness of the dollar uh, and the technical chart uh, showing that that will continue. Uh, now, two charts, one story. Uh, sentiment. Bitcoin has attracted increasingly stronger uh, and more ardent support in the institutional investing community. I think there is a religious-like following of it. Um, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If millions of people believe in something and put their money behind it, it's going to continue to bid up. Uh, and I think Bitcoin is not necessarily the antithesis of the dollar, but it is certainly an indicator of openness to change asset classes and change perspectives and change economic theory, uh, because Bitcoin, as we know, is not a store of value. It's really a measure of sentiment. It's a measure of enthusiasm uh, to make money outside of traditional economic uh, metrics. And so I think Bitcoin uh, continues to see momentum behind it. And I see the dollar continues to see weakness behind it. But I don't think it's uh, um, impossible for them to move in the same direction. Uh, just at this time, the sentiments are, are uh, diametrically opposed. Jeff, when you talk to clients, are you getting more and more questions about Bitcoin? Yeah, no question. I think just because of the institutional interest, people are seeing it more in the news. Uh, and whenever the price of an asset goes up the way Bitcoin has, you're going to get more questions from clients. And, you know, we don't own it specifically, but for our clients who want to own it outside the confines of Bryn Mawr Trust, I mean, what they tell what we tell them is, look, this is a behavioral exercise in a lot of ways, right? Because this is an asset class, an asset that's going to be volatile. You're going to see ups and downs. Um, could the price double or triple? Sure. Could you have an 80, 90 percent drawdown? Absolutely. We've seen it over time. So you can't invest more than you're comfortable with sticking through that kind of volatility. You're going to end up missing out on whatever long-term gains are in front of you. So that's the advice we've been giving. Guy, you know, we talked about specific trades tied to a weak dollar, but overall a weak dollar obviously helps all boats. It helps corporate earnings, especially tech firms. I mean, a weak dollar really uh, permeates the entire stock market in terms of impact. No question about it. And I didn't go to a fancy school like you and James, but I did take a day of economics and we learned about uh, the point of diminishing marginal returns. And you're right, a weaker dollar traditionally is very bullish for the majority of U.S. stocks. I get it. I understand what's going on. But I also think you reach a point where that ceases to be the case and it gets dangerous uh, to what's going on here. Remember, this is still an economy here in the United States that's 73 percent driven by the consumer. And although the central bankers and our Federal Reserve won't tell you as the dollar diminishes in price, your buying power is diminished. And that, by definition, is inflationary. So at a certain point, it's not good. And I unfortunately, that point, and 
You could see a day where the dollar gets smacked. And all you need to go back is look at last Monday when you had that huge move in the VIX. I know James spoke of this from 20 to 30. You had a huge spike in the dollar. That spike lasted all of about four hours. And here we are now. And oh, by the way, final point, you know, Janet Yellen came out out of nowhere, seemingly, with her uh, view on a stronger dollar policy. That bounce lasted for about an hour and a half. So, you know, they can talk it up all they want. The dollar's going lower. And to answer your question, we're getting dangerously close to the point where it's no longer bullish for equities, in my opinion. All right. Well, our next guest just put out his Bitcoin forecast for 21 and sees Epicenter stocks as the trade next year. Tom Lee joins us. He's the head of research for Fundstrat Global Advisors. Tom, great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, your forecast, do you wish you, you put out a higher number at this point? <laughs> How much Bitcoin's <laughs> risen in such a short amount of time? Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, that number it actually came from David Greyer, okay. who's our digital asset strategist. But uh, I, I think it, um, in rounder numbers, you know, 2021 is going to be a lot like 2017, um, which means Bitcoin should do even better in 2021 than it did in 2020. So something above 300 percent. More than 300 percent return on Bitcoin Correct. is what you're forecasting. We were just having a conversation yeah. about the, the interplay or, or the relationship potentially of a weaker dollar and a stronger Bitcoin. Is that part of this thesis? Is that part of your thesis, Tom? Um, it's gonna be part of it uh, for two reasons. You know, first, um, you know, Bitcoin, it's gonna be denominated in something. So if the dollar's weakening, but Bitcoin holds its value, then Bitcoin goes up. But the more important effect is this year, you know, we did see a lot of central bank liquidity. The dollar was really strong, uh, surprisingly, for much of the year. But its weakness now really is is going to make people think, you know, how do you sort of keep some, a unit in sound money? A lot of people thought gold would be that sort of store. And it, I think it still has a reasonable basis to be, you know, for someone to be long gold. But I think for younger folks and those who are in the digital generation, Bitcoin is that digital asset that they want to hold as a store value. All right, let's pivot uh, back to stocks, Tom, in terms of your epicenter trade. You've been on this for a while. You think that's going to continue to be the theme in 2021, even though we've seen some pretty nice gains lately? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think what people have to keep in mind about 2020 is two things. One is uh, it was really a year where institutional investors were just trying to, to not do harm to their portfolio. So you didn't really see a lot of risk on from the financial institutions. And secondly... Um, you know, equities have seen negative mutual fund flows for nearly 10 years. I mean, so stocks have become the least favorite asset class for almost a decade. And I think 2020 was just a year where, where stocks proved to be pretty resilient. But I actually think that the epicenter stocks or the cyclicals have proven to be unkillable. I mean, we went through a depression. We should have seen a bunch of bankruptcies, but instead credit held these companies slash cost. And so as you know, people like operating leverage because it helps perpetual future value. And so I think these cyclicals or the epicenters are going to get not only top line surprise next year, but their multiples are going to really surprise us. And that means they could have a huge year. Hey, Tom, it's Dan Nathan. How are you, bud? Great to have you here. Hey, uh, quick question here on the Bitcoin. OK. The last two times the stock market has corrected meaningfully in Q4 2018 and then obviously 
in Q1 of this year, Bitcoin got creamed. It got cut in half on both instances. And, and so just help us and my, I guess, the viewers understand a little bit. You know, one of the, the kind of bull cases is that store of value, also that uncorrelated nature to traditional risk assets. Why do you think we had those sorts of corrections at that point, those crashes? Um, and what bars it from happening this time around after such a large um, rally in Bitcoin over the last six months or so? Um. Yeah, Dan, uh, it's a good point. And, you know, we have to keep in mind Bitcoin's holder base is still tiny. I don't think there's even really more than a million real people that own Bitcoin compared to nearly a billion people that own other financial instruments. Um, so it's tiny. The penetration's one one thousand, so where it should be. And we've written about this, but Bitcoin is acts like a risk on assets. So in the years where the S&Ps performed the best are all also the best years for equities. I mean, you could even interpret it you know, two ways. So I think if we have a correction in stocks, then Bitcoin's going to fall. And it's because uh, a lot of the incremental buyers, if they're in the U.S., may, may be using leverage or risk on or risk appetite as a reason to add to Bitcoin. So it should, you know, it should actually be falling if stocks fall. Tom, great to speak with you. Happy New Year. Yeah, thanks. Tom Lee of Fundstrat. Cyclicals are unkillable. Jeff Mills, do you agree with that? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the things I've been looking at recently to try to get a little bit of a tell in terms of where the market thinks we're going from an economic standpoint, from a global growth standpoint next year, is some of these relationships, sort of risk on, risk off, uh, stay at home, reopening trades. And it is interesting because you saw, you know, Live Nation versus Netflix or Macy's versus Amazon or Delta versus Zoom. You saw these recoveries and you saw the reopening start to outperform. But even as virus cases have started to tick up, even as we've started to see a little bit of a loss in momentum in some economic data, um, we haven't seen a real drop off in the relative performance of those pairs. So in a lot of ways, I do agree. And we talked about the, the stimulus package last week. And I think in a lot of ways that that clears the path for what 2021 is going to look like as an entire year versus just the first quarter and i think you do have room to run in small caps i think there's going to be an earnings tailwind there mm -hmm. um so yeah i think that you're getting evidence of that from the market and that's how we're trying to position ourselves heading into next year yeah and we saw a pullback in small caps after a massive run james which you've been highlighting for for some time and yet we bounced today what did you make of that well, I think that when a market goes with a vertical energy that the Russell has, an unparalleled run, uh, one that is at least 15% uh, broader than any run next to it, uh, it has to pause. But what was interesting is the selling that happened this week, two phenomena occurred. And so uh, just yesterday was the third consecutive decline in the Russell. That was the first time we'd seen that in two months. And so you had a torrential uh, move upward where the, the Russell literally didn't go down more than one day at all for a month. And so yesterday we had the third consecutive day of selling for the first time in two months. And so, of course, uh, the rally and the energy that went behind it's going to come back. And we got just to a point where we had about a 50% retracement of that pullback. Now, let's talk about the pullback itself. In one session, you erased 16 days mm -hmm. uh, worth of trading in a single session. And so I think the selling uh, that's coming uh, from this, what I believe is a bubble, I disagree with the previous comment that uh, small cats have more room to run um, because I think the economic backdrop assumptions are wrong about the health of the economy. Mm. Um, but just the selling that we saw in that last two days, 16 days wiped out 
in one session. I think it's just a clue of what's coming. All right, let's switch gears here. We want to take a look at shares of Tesla closing just shy of a record today. And Dan, you uh, flagged some interesting action in this stock. You actually uh, emailed some charts over earlier. Um, you used a word I can't use on this family show about this price action that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's probably, and we've spent a lot of time talking about Tesla here. Uh, in this year, we've spent more than enough time talking about Tesla. But I think it's really important to note that this stock closed within 20 cents of its all-time high, a high that I might have said a couple weeks ago the day it was added to the S&P 500. It may not see for a very long time. It looks like it's about to explode through there. Let's just talk about three charts here because I think it's truly astounding. Look at the chart from the start of January to November 16th. November 16th was the day that S&P announced that it would be added to the S&P 500 index. At that point, the stock was down 20% from its September 2nd high. It looked like it was about to break down. The fever had broken in this name. From November 16th till now, the stock has rallied 70% in nearly a straight line into that S&P ad, but it's held those gains. That is truly astounding. When you think about it in market cap terms, this stock is up over 700% on the year, up 900% from its March lows. It's gained uh, you know, five, $600 billion in market cap. We have never seen an asset bubble emerge so quickly. And here's the kicker. There is no fundamental news out in the last five or six weeks. So to me, this is just pure frenzy. It's pure sentiment. We, I've been in the business for 25 years. I've never seen anything like it. Maybe the Bitcoin and the Bitcoin doing what it's doing with a 500 plus billion dollar market cap is really interesting. These are both two risk assets where a lot of rich people actually own the product or like the product and mm -hmm. own it in some weirdo little wallet or something like that. And they're evangelists for it. And so I think James has used the term religion. There is some serious religion going on here. But I just really warn uh, you know, investors that this sort of frenzy, you know, it could continue to go much, much higher. But when it blows in both of these things, it's going to blow really hard. And it's just going to be one of those things that's going to be very uncomfortable for people who thought they believed in a certain thing. And then they're kind of like you know, laid bare for what it is. Yeah. There is a rhyme to the reason, Guy, in terms of how we started the show with Bitcoin. We ending here in the A block with, uh, with Tesla. Do you agree with the risk reversal about it exploding higher? Yeah, I do think it explodes higher. And let me be clear, I've never once said that I truly understand the Tesla story. I've, you know, I try to get my arms around it, but I've mentioned two things religiously to use to coin a phrase we've talked about now a couple times. Since that Joe Kernan interview with the president back in February at Davos when they were playing word association and he and Joe asked President Trump something about Elon Musk. Since that day, the stock has never looked back. And then in May, I think it was May 2nd or 3rd, when Tesla was making new all time high pre split of 703 and Elon Musk tweeted something to the accord of, you know, the stock is too expensive or paraphrasing that sell off lasted a day. And I've been steadfast since both those episodes like you can't fade this you got to stay with it and i'm going to say that again you have to stay with it and quickly you mentioned the cyclicals being unkillable i mm. think that's not you but somebody said that tom you lee. recall that a few minutes ago yeah tom lee said that well i know you're a fan of i, I know you watch uh the movie predator i know you're a fan if it ever comes on on the Huge. netflix you you lock Huge in fan. but I, I i i hearken back to uh obviously the great arnold schwarzenegger sonny langham carl weathers when they noticed that the predator could bleed or was bleeding, they said, if it bleeds, we can kill it. 
And I got to tell you something, the cyclicals have bled before. They are absolutely killable, Mel. And for you folks at home, great movie on a rainy night. I actually know the movie reference for the first time ever in Fast Money history. Coming up, <laughs> it's been a roller coaster ride for shares of FUBO the last two weeks. And there are signs that the big swings are only just beginning. We'll tell you what is next. But first, a positive signal and a beaten down chart. We'll tell you what just happened in the energy ETF and what it may mean for where it's going next. Fast Money's back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money, a bullish signal materializing in one of 2020's beaten down groups during today's rally. The S&P energy sector's 50-day moving average rising above its 200-day average, otherwise known as the Golden Cross. Is this sign strong enough to imply energy's worst days are over? Guy. I knew you'd I like think that. you rushed it. You should have let the you should have let Play the sound a little bit just longer. go a little just, bit longer. That's yeah. me. Uh, yeah. yeah, I just rushed it Thanks just a tips. wee bit. Yeah. Uh, no, no, listen. I think there are some golden days ahead, of, for sure. <laughs> you know, if you look at ExxonMobil, for example, that 31 level we've talked about this seemingly um, for the last couple months, huge double bottom, and quite frankly, you have the same setup. In XLE, I think it trades up to that 47 June high, and if memory serves, it closed around 38 and change today. So I do think there's room to the upside. That's not to suggest you're not going to have some huge down moves in the back half of next year, because I do think you are on the back of what is hopefully a better economy, but it won't be. But in the meantime, I think energy could surprise some people in the first half of next year. Yeah. Jeff Mills, what's your take on energy? Are there any specific stocks you're, you're eyeing? Yeah, I mean, I, so first, energy overall, you know, it's one of these things where the technical indicator, it's very early, so I, I want to see a little bit more of a follow-through there. To Guy's point, we're still below that June high. We're still below any long-term downtrend you can draw over the past few years. So, again, I'd want to see more momentum there. But if we're looking to individual stocks and trying to find some value, we've talked about EOG before, um, certainly been early on that call, but... I think it's a really good company. It has a good cost structure. Uh, management is exceptional. So I think that's a company there where you could buy, um, and, it's, and it's at a good value, although the chart looks very similar to the XLE right now. A, a good chart amongst a sea of bad charts would be Chenier. Um, I think that's a very interesting stock. You know, they have steady revenue. They have those pay or take, take or pay contracts, uh, a good dividend yield. So you have, you have one value play in EOG where the chart doesn't look great, but you could see a bounce. And then uh, something in Chenier where the chart looks a little bit better and you can play the momentum upward. All right, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. A recent high flyer taking another big blow today. We'll find out what's dragging on shares of Fubo TV and if the slide has only just begun. Plus, you got questions? We've got answers. A special bonus hour of Fast Money kicks off at the top of the hour. And we're taking your most burning trading questions. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money and tune in at 6. Fast Money is back after this break. What does it mean to be rich? 
Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of Fubo TV plunging 14% today as its lockup period expired. It's now dropped 40% from an all-time high hit just last week. For more, we're joined by Rich Greenfield of Lightshed Partners. Rich, great to speak with you. Um, you recently initiated with an $8 price target a sell rating. I know on Twitter you've been getting a lot of, well, flack, let's just say that, um, hate. You know, some, so many different words apply to the response that you've gotten. Why do you think... Fubo is one of those highly charged names. You know, I think this is one of those cases where there is a big discrepancy between what this company is and what retail investors seem to think it is. Institutional investors know very well this is a VMVPD. So this is virtual multi-channel video program distributor. So think Comcast, but without the wires. And there's lots of them. As you can see in the background behind me, YouTube TV, Hulu Live, Fubu, these are all the same. They basically have the same channels. They all do the same thing. None of them really make money. They basically are all in the business for other reasons. Fubo's problem is this is their only business, and that's just not a very good business. So you are joined today um, in terms of the short thesis on Fubo by um, a hedge fund, Carisdale Capital, which helped uh, pressure the stock in addition to, to this lockup expiration. What happens to a name like this that's driven primarily, in your view, by retail sentiment? You know, we talk to obviously a lot of investors. We have, um, you know, a pretty good network of subscribers at Lightshed uh, over the last 15 months that uh, we've built our business. Uh, we have yet to talk to an institutional investor that wants to own this stock at this valuation. So it really leads us to believe that almost all of the buying has been overzealousness among retail investors who think this is Roku or think this is Netflix or think this is DraftKings or FanDuel. And unfortunately, I feel bad for them. They're just wrong. This is just a troubled virtual VMVPD. And, and the key here is this company couldn't raise capital. I love the founder. They've done an incredible job building a business from with, with on pennies on the dollar. Like they've done a great job building this, but the valuation just doesn't make any sense. And I said, I've been doing this job for over 25 years. I've never seen a more compelling short than Fubo at the valuation that it is today, let alone where it was a week ago before it started falling. Hey, Rich, it's Dan. Thanks for joining us. Um, you know, your commentary has been really interesting on this name. It's been a frenzy, and we talk a lot about frenzies here. But it's not just little names like this. You know, Disney is up 50% in the last two months. So when you think about, you know, Disney obviously uh, primarily owns Hulu here. What do you think is going on in the space in general? And in Disney in particular, are investors placing too much emphasis on Disney Plus and these streaming assets? 
look where we've gone wrong in Disney for sure is that investors have basically overlooked the two worst quarters in the company's history and purely focused on the opportunity of Disney Plus and really looking at Disney Plus as the potential to be something much, much bigger than it is today. Forget about the $5 ARPU today. They're looking at the long term and what was an incredible array of content at their analyst day. What I think has gotten confused with Fubo is Fubo is not uh, an SVOD company like Disney Plus or Netflix. It's a 455,000 subscriber, very small company. I mean, Sony had seven, 800,000 subscribers and shut the business down at the end of last year. It was called Sony View. AT&T has shut a million subscribers over the last year because this business doesn't make money. It used to be called DirecTV Now. You may remember it was a big, hot VMVPD a year ago, and they basically have been shedding subscribers over the past year. This is just not a good business. Mm -hmm. The only reason Hulu's in the business is because there's a much larger business called Hulu SVOD, which is almost the entire value of Hulu is their subscription business. Think of Handmaid's Tale and all of the on-demand programming they have. They're not in this to make money on the live TV service. YouTube TV, which the screenshot behind me has Sports Illustrated calling it the best way to stream television. Yeah. That business is because YouTube sees a much larger play in advertising tied to the YouTube ecosystem, not because they love live TV. Uh, and just quickly, Richard, we're out of time, but just to button up, if Fubo is on one end of the spectrum in terms of streaming plays, in terms of being overvalued where it is, what's the best opportunity? Look, I think if, 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 if you have viewers that are looking to play the wave of people being locked up during COVID who are really looking for ways to make money in the streaming ecosystem, there's no better stock than Netflix. And it just continues to be a stock that's going to continue to grind higher day after day, especially to the extent that the pandemic lasts longer than we think. And we're also seeing, I mean, sort of all of Hollywood is starting to realize that they have to release movies direct to consumer. Right. That really plays into what Netflix's big story is for 21, which is the movie business. Rich, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Rich Thanks Greenfield. for having me, Melissa and Dan. All right. Um, Rich should turn off his Twitter machine. Um, Fubo's options had a huge day today as well. Mike co spotted some unusual activity that could be signaling a short squeeze here in this stock. He joins us now. Mike, what'd you spot? Yeah, so in options, you can have investing strategies, you can have trading strategies, and you can have pure speculation. I think that's what we're seeing here. Fubo traded more than three times its average daily options volume, more than four times its average daily put volume. But one of the areas that I saw a lot of activity was the January 40 calls, interestingly enough. Nearly 10,000 of those traded for about $3.67 or so on average, more than 10% of the current stock price. What's going on? My guess, either these are people hedging their shorts or speculating on a potential short squeeze because this stock already has a lot of short interest even before the most recent news that some other shorts are entering the picture. Thanks for that, Mike. Guy Dami, Netflix or Fubo or somewhere in between? You know the answer. You know the answer. Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, Steadfast Netflix. Reed Hastings, stud. And by the way, for all you haters on Twitter out there, Rich Greenfield, who we've known now for over a decade, some, does some of the most thoughtful work out of anybody we've ever had on. So for, for him to come on and say that, you know, he clearly has done the work behind it. So does it go to $8? I have no idea. But don't discount or disregard uh, the great Rich Greenfield. Back yeah. to you, Mel. Uh, James, your thoughts on streaming? Streaming's great. Uh, Fubu's not. Uh, you know, we referenced a great movie, Predator. There was another great movie in that era, uh, Saving uh, Private Ryan, and there was an acronym in there, FUBAR, FUBU, FUBAR. Um, that's what I think of this company. It's in bad shape. Um, their service simply isn't differentiated from competitors. 
and YouTube TV, uh, the, the, the Netflix uh, narrative, um, it's just, it's not even a comparison. Um, and they have this fantasy that they're going to be in the sports betting world uh, when most states haven't even legalized gambling. So um, it's been said over and over again, this is a sell. All right, coming up on Fast Money tonight. It's been a favorite play for one of our traders, but has it paid off? We'll get some answers. And later, we've got a mini game of Shop It or Drop It proposed by one big-time Fast Money fan. He may be amongst the biggest fans out there of this show. But the desk thinks of these B2B software stocks and come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. As markets have been setting new records, one leverage fund meant to protect against volatility in the index has been deep in the red. For more on what's been going on, let's get to Bob Pisani. Bob. Hello, Melissa. Happy New Year. ProShares UltraVix short-term futures ETF, the symbol is UVXY, provides one and a half times leverage exposure to an index that comprises first and second month VIX futures. Okay. But investors who piled into this leveraged ETF anticipating that volatility would be spiking have been sorely disappointed. Now, it's not just that volatility has been low. That's true, but it's more complicated than that. These are leveraged ETFs, and they are dangerous to hold for anything but the shortest of terms. That's because you're guaranteed one and a half times exposure to the VIX for only a single day. And the results over time may vary considerably. Returns over holding periods greater than one day can be and usually are significantly different than just one and a half times. Futures is another key word here. Beware this word. This product does not deliver leverage returns on the VIX index itself, but instead on front and second month futures contracts on the VIX. Because the futures are constantly expiring and new futures have to be bought, the cost of buying that roll is considerable and it eats into any potential future profits. It's a mess. You put it all together and returns held for more than a few days can be vastly different than expected, as I said, as an example, just look at this. The VIX is up about 60% this year. The UVXY is down about 20%. So the lesson here is very simple. Leveraged and inverse ETFs are short-term trading vehicles that should not be held for anything but the shortest period and should be avoided altogether for most investors. Melissa, how many times have we done this story, you and I, in the last 10, 12 years? Constantly reminding people. It's a good reminder, though, Bob. Thank you. Yeah. Bob Pisani. Okay. Um, and, and we brought this up and we had Bob do this report on the UVXY specifically because James has been recommending UVXY since he joined us in early November. It's down about 50 percent since then. And we thought that it'd be worth addressing, James, because it's down 50 percent. We and we're getting a lot of questions about this from viewers. So why do you use this instrument and are you sticking with it? Thanks for the opportunity. And um, this will be interesting comments because... Not only do I love UVXY, but I also love Bob Pizzotti, um, excellent analyst and a veteran in this business. And I want to echo his warnings. This is not something that should be traded by an individual investor, uh, and it is not a buy and hold investment. The decay factor from the daily reset of a leveraged instrument means that if the index it's tracking uh, does not move, it will lose value automatically. And it is a dangerous instrument. It is not a buy and hold instrument. This is why we trade UVXY. It offers an unparalleled upside scenario for a market pullback. And we are at all-time highs on virtually every market indicator. And every time in history where we've been at these market highs, there's been a short-term follow-through to the downside 
that would push UVXY to levels that we saw similarly uh, in June, where we saw over a 40%, 50%, 60% increase in a few days. Um, and we called UVXY, we made this same trade a year ago uh, in January, excuse me, February 5th, we made this call based on market valuations, no clue that there was a virus was coming. We made a call on valuations and we bought January 2021 contracts uh, incrementally. Uh, those UVXY calls, as we saw, UVXY is about 11 bucks, went over 100 bucks. And so we're talking about returns that cannot be accomplished anywhere. So to your viewers, this is not something you should buy and expect to buy and hold. This is a positioning instrument ahead of a market correction uh, that offers generational returns. And where we apply our investment, we don't buy UVXY. We buy deep in the money call options that are front dated. So we like the June calls right now, the June 5 calls. And so if we expect UVXY uh, to see pressure in the short term, we're deep in the money and we're long dated. And so this UVXY bet is not a bet that UVXY will rise. It's a bet that market valuations will catch up with this market. And if we get a 10, 15, 20, 30% pullback on the market, you get a 5, 10, 15x return uh, on those call options. And so this is something that can be used either to hedge a portfolio yep. or with long bias. And so it is a complicated investment that's not for everybody. But we, um, you know, we love UVXY because it gives us an opportunity to generate returns that can't can't be generated anywhere else. We're glad we got that clarification in and let's underscore this. This is the deep end of the pool, guys. So <laughs> think very carefully uh, if you're considering using this instrument. Coming up, how one work from home winner plans to boost profits in 2021, even as employers reopen offices. We hear from the CEO and catch us for a special bonus hour Fast Money. That's coming up next. We're answering your stock market questions as simple as sending us a tweet at CNBC Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of data center REIT Equinix. It was a big winner as a work from home boom took off earlier this year. But as a COVID vaccine rolls out and people go back to the office, what's next for the company? Equinix CEO Charles Myers joins us now. Charles, great to have you with us. Thanks, Melissa. Good to be here. Your stock's been uh, doing well this year. It's up about 20% year to date. But over the past three months, that's when we started to see the decline. And it's part of this larger rotation in general away from those work from home names, away from the growthy names. And I'm wondering, Charles, if you could speak to this idea that there has been pull forward in all sorts of work from home plays. Has there been pull forward in your view in terms of customers' demand for data centers? Yeah, we don't really see it as a pull forward. We see it as a sustainable, you know, sort of demand, underlying demand driver in terms of digital transformation being a critical priority for businesses. We see digital transformation in our lives as consumers every day. And I think that's, uh, that same trend is playing out in the enterprise, creating a massive addressable market to support digital transformation. So I think while there is probably some spiky demand created by the work from home transition, um, you know, I don't see it as a pull forward, but I see it more as a, a really strong underlying secular demand trend. Charles, just, just seeing the news over the last couple of weeks, you closed on a joint venture with Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund. Can you speak to what you're hoping you're gonna get from that? Sure, that's actually our, our second um, uh, joint venture with GIC uh, to support our hyperscale aspirations. We, um, some time ago, we actually decided to pursue the large footprint hyperscale demands of companies like um, AWS, Microsoft, Google, et cetera, the large cloud players, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, both here and, uh, and in uh, other parts of the world. 
um, you know, via a joint venture where we could allocate our capital to our retail heavily interconnected business and use uh, the uh, the financial resources of our partners to support the hyperscale side of our business. And so we're excited about that. We closed the JB in Western Europe uh, some time ago. I've seen strong demand for that and just recently announced this uh, most recent JV in Japan. Uh, and there'll be more to come in that space um, uh, across the world with, uh, with probably GIC and other partners as well. Hey, um, so thanks for joining us here. Um, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, you don't really see it as much of a pull forward, and especially during the pandemic here. Um, how do you see this acceleration kind of, um, you know, going in 2021, 2022? Like, how do you see it for your sure. business here? Um, because, you know, there's a lot of investors who are like trying to pull the plug on these trades that won the pandemic, so to speak. But it seems like your business was already going in this direction. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, again, you look at the underlying demand drivers and digital transformation as a trend is one that we think is extremely durable. As we talk to our customers, you know, they, they just feel like, um, you know, they've seen what happened in the pandemic in terms of people who were better prepared for digital transforma transformation outperforming those that were less prepared. And I think, uh, you know, independent of macroeconomic conditions, uh, we're seeing people prepared to put uh, money to work to uh, to continue their digital transformation. I mean, every aspect of business across every vertical is changing due to digital. Not only how you interact with your customers in terms of online uh, buying and, and uh, you know what people normally think of, but also how you interact with your employees and work from home has really shown that. How you interact with your suppliers, your partners. Um, these, uh, you know, businesses are now run by applications, and the performance of, performance of those applications is heavily dependent on your digital infrastructure. And that digital infrastructure really needs to be distributed across the globe, and that's where Equinix comes in in terms of helping customers interconnect their infrastructure to the cloud. Charles, great to speak with you. Charles Myers. Great to be here. CEO Happy holidays Equinix. to you. Guys. Happy holidays to you. Happy New Year. Uh, Jeff Mills, how do you think about? trading this trend towards digitization, everything online, business online, shopping online, et cetera. Yeah, I agree in the sense that I don't know that it's it's demand that's going to go away. I think it's one of those things that's an acceleration of an existing trend. You know, we were looking at the tower REITs. We own some tower REITs. I think that it, it's very similar to those kinds of companies, you know, positive secular growth trends. You have rising mobile data consumption and 5G and all of these things. Um, and these businesses typically have pretty low customer churn. And I think Equinix is in a, a very similar place. Um, yes, they're helping companies like Zoom and Cisco's WebEx. And um, that demand will probably plateau some. But at the same time, I don't think that we're going back to where we were before. Then they have all of those other revenue angles that, uh, that we were just talking about. I mean, the stock is down 16%. Uh, it, it showed some decent support at the 200-day moving average. It is trading at a premium, but maybe it deserves it. All right. Coming up, shop it or drop it. We tackle three widely held software stocks when fast money returns. Welcome back. A reminder that we've got a bonus hour Fast Money coming up at the top of the hour, and we are answering all of your trading questions. And we thought we'd give you a little preview of what's in store. So here's the question from a very big fan of one of our traders. I'm a big fan of the show, and above all, I'm a big fan of Mr. Guy Adami, who I think is the brightest mind in the U.S. and probably in the world. Yes, Mel, seriously. And I'm going to have to apologize in advance. I was thinking of throwing in a would you rather, but I'm going to go a little bit more original with a shop it or drop it. 
around three B2B names. Uh, the first one is Salesforce, the second one is Workday, and the last one is Oracle. So would you shop or drop these three names? And just to clarify, Guy, uh, if you shop it, you're buying it. <laughs> he clearly watches the show. But for him to say that you are one of the brightest minds in the U.S. and probably the world, well, we won't hold it against him. What do you have, no, do you have I to mean, say to Ramiro? <laughs> I mean, completely misguided. But I love it nonetheless. And as you know, I actually speak Portuguese. And if we had more time, I'd give the entire answer in Portuguese. But I will say to the bane, and he would say to the bone. With that, all that said, and I appreciate that, that's very kind, here's my shop it or drop it. Oracle was my O in hope, if you recall, and it's now made a new 52-week I. I absolutely shop Oracle. Workday has a major double top around 250. If you go back to September, I would drop Workday. And Salesforce, if you look at it, um, the bloom is off the rose since early September. Something's going on. So I got to drop that as well. So two drops. One shop, uh, and I love South America. I love Brazil, although there's a story, backstory as to why I can't go back to the continent. Back to you, Mel. He's from Argentina, <laughs> but I'm sure he glad you love, he's glad that you love Brazil. Bro, <laughs> well, thought he was from Brazil. I, I mean, sorry. <laughs> okay. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Dan. Yeah, Coca-Cola here. Looks like it's poised to break out of 55 and make a run for 60 early in the new year. James. Market's coming off. I still got to stick with UVXY. Jeff Mills. Wish I was on yesterday to do this. It was up 4% today, but I'm a buyer of Macy's. I don't know if I love the long-term story, but it's found support around 10. It's broken out to a new recovery high. I think you play the momentum here, Macy's. Guy. Before we get out of here, Mel, I'm not with you tomorrow. Happy New Year oh, to you. Happy New All Year. the Fast Money team, all the viewers. It's been a wonderful, crazy, interesting year. We've gotten through it together. PSX. Yeah. Going higher. Can you believe year 14 of Fast Money is next year, 2021? Amazing. That does it for us for this hour. But remember, we've got another bonus hour of Fast Money coming up on the other side of this break. So do not go anywhere. Hey there, Mad Money fans. Kramer's off this week, but you are in luck. We've got another bonus hour of Fast Money coming your way. We're answering all your questions about the hot stocks you're trading right now. And we want to hear from you, so tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We might just answer your question live on air. Your traders tonight, Jeff Mills, Mike Coe, and James McDonald. Let's get right to it. We've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. Does your portfolio need a shot in the arm? Here's a viewer question on the coronavirus vaccine makers. Hey, this is Dave from Paducah, Kentucky. My question today is about Pfizer and Monera. Um, they both came out with the vaccine, but it looks like Monera has just shot up. But even though Pfizer was first to the game, uh, their stock has seemed to stay stagnant around 36, 37, and somewhere in that range. Um, I don't understand why it's not taking off. Maybe you guys can help me out. Thanks for taking the question. Jeff, what do you tell David in Kentucky? Yeah, Dave, it's a, a very good question that we're getting a lot. And I feel like I give boring answers sometimes when I tell people to buy ETFs. But 
you know, I think about getting exposure to the biotech space right now. And given all the cross currents, you know, with the uncertainty of the company's pipelines just generally, and then what's going on with the vaccine and trying to untangle all of that and figure out why one stock did one, one thing and one stock did another, it's just very difficult. So if you're looking for broad exposure to biotech, I do like the IBB. You had that decisive breakout above 127. You had a successful retest there. So I think you continue to play that breakout in IBB higher. Um, just to address the specific stocks briefly, you know, they're both moving down toward that 50-day moving average. Pfizer is there already, looks to be holding. So I would use both of those levels as a guide for those companies. I do prefer Pfizer simply because of the valuation. I think their pipeline is a little bit clearer. And then they do pay that 4% dividend yield. I mean, James, Moderna is, is strictly, it's a vaccine company. Their pipeline involves other vaccines that are built on this specific mRNA technology. Pfizer is more of a diversified pharmaceutical play. It's true, and we can compare the two companies, but let's just take our lens and step back a minute and look how far these companies have run, and then think about why these companies ran in the first place. And I think a modicum of caution is needed here. Uh, the Biden-Fauci vaccine rollout it's falling way behind target. Um, the outbreak's expected to worsen. I'm not sure that the vaccine uh, is the uh, uh, solution that we thought it was. If you look at the World Health Organization trial data, it gives no indication that the vaccines can prevent transmissions. And so either of these stocks, I think, is vulnerable uh, to significant pressure. We saw a San Diego nurse uh, test positive eight days after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. Ten percent of those vaccinated have allergic reactions. Um, a man died in Switzerland two hours after receiving his first dose, the Pfizer vaccine. There's a lot of risk ahead. Um, and so one outperforming the other, I think, begs the question, do they either deserve to be at these valuation levels, given that we haven't seen proof uh, in efficacy in terms of what ran those stocks up in the first place? They're and always, so I'm so yeah. for both of them. Yeah, of course, there will always be skeptics out there, Mike Coe. But in terms of these stocks specifically, um, would you recommend either or go with a, a broader basket play like Jeff does? No, I, I like Jeff's play on IBB. I kind of liked IBB before all of this anyway. I think that's a good diversified way to get exposure to basically innovations in the biotech space. You know, Pfizer is, you know, it's a, leg, it's a company that has a lot of legacy drugs. It had some issues with its pipeline ahead of this. And when you're dealing with a company of that scale and scope, you know, you can't really just look at what's going on right now. You have to take a look at basically across the spectrum of everything that they're offering. And those challenges that existed before all of this are going to continue to exist thereafter. The point I would make, though, is that the stock price is essentially pricing a lot of that in. So I don't know that there's a whole lot of further weakness in Pfizer, despite the fact that it's obviously not going to get a big boost or hasn't been, at least, on the vaccine front. All right. Our next question is about an industry trying to stay afloat. Hey guys, this is Jackson Phillips from down in Houston, Texas. I'm a big fan of the show. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the cruise industry and more importantly CCL. Now that vaccines are rolling out, how do you see these stocks performing over the next year? Thanks so much. Jackson in Houston must be a big fan because we had a question from him yesterday. Another good question. Today, uh, James, it's CCL and the cruise and we definitely have a reopening theme here in the first few minutes of the show. I like CCL towards the end of next year. I think that we still have, as I said, some pressure coming in. We have to see that the vaccine works. We have to see that people get vaccinated. And then we have to see 
true reopenings and a return to normalcy. I think once those three stages happen, people are going to rush back into the leisure space. I think CCL is a good buy for that outcome once we get past those initial risks. Mike, what do you think of the cruise lines? Yeah, so I, I think when we see a, a full reopening, I think there's probably going to be a lot of pent-up demand for cruising. I think that was a, a pretty, uh, you know, the customer base were pretty loyal to that. The point that I would make about companies like this, and this is something we need to be cautious about, not just in this sector, is that a lot of these companies have taken on significant amounts of debt as a result of what's gone on. And if you take a look at the enterprise value of these businesses, one of the things you're going to find is that they're actually valued very close to where they were at the end of 2019. CCL's enterprise value is almost spot on where it was in December of 2019. Royal Caribbean is actually slightly less of the two. I'd probably rather Royal Caribbean than CCL. But just bear in mind that these companies, although the market cap is down, aren't particularly cheap on a total valuation. You have to take a look at both the debt and the equity. Yeah, and they've raised a lot of debt uh, during this pandemic. Jeff Mills, I don't know if cruise lines are your cup of tea in terms of playing the reopening trade. Yeah, I've been anti-cruise line, anti-airline. I'm coming around a little bit to the airlines. I think they probably recover a bit more quickly. The one thing I would add to what everyone already said is that, yes, I think there's pent-up demand. Demand is going to come back. It might not be to the second half of 2021. But I think you have to triangulate when demand comes back and then when pricing power comes back. Because demand's going to come back first, but then I think it could take even more time for pricing to come back. So I think there's a lot of choppy waters pun intended, to navigate, so I take my time with the cruise lines. No points against you for that. Up next, a question on a sector <laughs> hoping for a Hollywood ending. This is Robert from California. I'm reaching out to you about AMC theaters. Do you think they're too deep in the hole? Or now that the vaccine came out, is that going to push the stock to go up? My question is, do you see the movie theaters recovering soon? Where do you stand with that stock? Mike Coe. Yeah, so uh, what I was just talking about with the cruise lines is much more true, actually, for AMC. So this is a situation where it isn't just an issue of the, basically the demand once we get a reopening. This is a company that is in a very poor cash position. So they probably lost, I think, about $360 million in, in cash over the last quarter. They have only $400 million or so on hand as of the last reported quarter. So you have a situation where they're bleeding cash and, and much more quickly uh, frankly, than the runway that we're looking at for a reopening. So I think there's a very risky, risky bet we're looking at here. $11.4 billion enterprise value, only $460 million market cap. Almost all of that is just basically the cash that's sitting on the balance sheet, and that's disappearing very quickly. James, I don't know what, if you've done the mental exercise, what will you do when the pandemic is over? And I don't know where going to the movies falls on your list. For me personally, it's sort of, you know, it may be fifth or sixth because of, of streaming and the dominance of streaming these days. It's a good point, but don't underestimate the power of well-buttered popcorn. Uh, the movie theater experience is more about just watching the shows. Uh, but as, was, as was what was said about AMC, uh, if you look at the um, decline of the chart over the last five years and then look at the volume of activity, um, this company is getting hammered uh, to the downside. We've seen 50, 75 times the volume of selling on the pressure of this COVID situation, and this is very destructive to the stock, very destructive to the company. I'm not sure this business sur survives uh, this next uh, uh, wave of lockdowns I believe are coming. All right, coming up, looking for fast profits and fast food stocks. We'll dig into McDonald's and that supersized trade next and later. Video games are red hot this year, but is it game on or game over for these stocks? We'll answer those questions and much more after this quick break. 
Welcome back to this bonus hour of Fast Money. We're chowing down on a restaurant stock question next. Hi, Fast Money. My name is Stavros. I'm calling from Buffalo, New York. I'd like to get your opinion about Cheesecake Factory, if it is a sell at these levels, or should we hold on for the reopening? Thank you. Before we get to our traders, let's bring in Kate Rogers for more on restaurant sales traffic. Kate, what's going on? Well, Melissa, typically December is a very busy month for bars and restaurants, but that is not the case this year. In fact, for the week ended December 20th, both traffic and sales saw their biggest declines since mid-June. According to Black Box Intelligence, sales dropping by 16.9%, traffic down 20.9% year-on-year. And with COVID cases spiking around the country, varying restrictions in place, and weather getting cooler, things likely won't turn around anytime soon. Full-service concepts, of course, continue to struggle more than limited and fast-food concepts. And older diners above age 65, they're staying home in larger numbers and avoiding dining in restaurants. The National Restaurant Association says 110,000 locations are now closed, either temporarily or permanently. 10,000 of those closures have happened within the last three months alone. The most recent pandemic aid package is welcome news as 37% of restaurants surveyed earlier in the month said that they didn't think it was likely they'd be in business by June without additional aid. The National Restaurant Association calling the relief bill a, quote, down payment on what the industry needs to survive. While restaurants and bars can borrow more than other small businesses under the new aid bill, they don't get direct relief like other industries do. Now, while independent restaurants continue to struggle, big publicly traded fast food names really dominated and outperformed this year. Some of the best performers of the year include Chipotle, Wingstop, pizza players like Papa John's, Domino's, and Shake Shack. Melissa, back over to you. Thank you very much, Kate Rogers. And of course, those are all carry-out quick-serve restaurants. So back to Stavros's question, Cheesecake Factory. James, I understand that you love Cheesecake Factory. I'm not sure you love eating there, love the stock. Clarify. I love Cheesecake Factory because uh, I'm a big believer that only the strong survive. And this is a strong business, the strong menu, a strong, loyal uh, consumer base. And this is an extraordinarily difficult time for restaurants, as those surveys showed. Uh, we're going back to kind of the March pressure that we've seen. And, you know, if you look at what's happening with the vaccine and look at what's happening with the virus, things are likely to get worse. But this company is so strong, it's going to survive it. I don't think it's a buy here at this level. I think we come back down to the mid-25s. However, at that level, uh, I love going into this name. If you look at the menu, if you look at the delivery options, they're expanding their ability to get to those people who love this menu. Uh, they will survive this, but at this level, I think that um, some more pain is coming. I would get back in at 25 and, and, and see a particularly strong upside there for the next three years after we go back uh, uh, to eating out. They've got strong portion sizes, too. That's for sure, Jeff Mills. I don't know. What, what do you think of the, the restaurants where you actually have to go in and, and sit there? Yeah, well, or they do out, have one say. of the thickest menus in the game. If if you if you can't find something that uh, that you like there, then I, th- I think you got a problem. So I, I think there, there's good and there's bad with Cheesecake Factory right now. I, I think the good is on the technical side, the near term trend is actually very good. Uh, the the 200 days turning up, it's been in a stable uptrend for a while, and obviously the stock is very cheap. Um, but I'll, I'll add a but to that, and I think that. If you pull your lens a little bit further back, the stock is in a multi-year downtrend. It's sort of bumping up against that level right now. And I think a big part of that 
was perhaps the location and the question about foot traffic in mall areas and things of that nature. So I think that could be a longer term headwind for a place like the Cheesecake Factory. Um, I may look elsewhere if I want to play this uh, this restaurant reopening trend, something like Darden, uh, a little bit more diversified, perhaps better location than the stock's been acting a little bit better lately. All right. Uh, if you're still hungry out there, we got another food question. Hey, Fast Money. This is Mark Kirkus from Huntington Beach, California. Uh, there's been lots of changes in the stock mar- market recently, uh, especially with McDonald's. And I'm wondering if I should cut my losses or stay with the McTrain. I like that. Stay on the McTrain. Mike, what do you say? <gasps> Yeah, so uh, fundamentally, I I like McDonald's a lot here. So it's probably trading around 25 times or so full year estimated earnings of probably just under eight bucks and 40 cents a share. Good dividend at just under two and a half percent. Technically is the only real issue here. I mean, they've been operating this business very, very well. Their refranchising efforts have been really pretty good that I really like what they're doing on the management side. Uh, the one thing I would say is technically it looks a little bit weak. It wouldn't surprise me much if we pull back somewhere into that 180-190 level, maybe a little bit, you know, 10% drop from here. But uh, otherwise, I, I like the company. It's well positioned, and I think it'll continue to be. James, you're a believer that things could get worse economically in terms of the in terms of the virus's impact. McDonald's has a lot of drive-through. Um, they've got a digital menu where it's easy to get in and out of that place if you if you want, and they've also got delivery. So where do you stand on on McDonald's? I think the previous analysis spot on. I think the market comes out a lot. I think McDonald's gets a 10% quick correction and then mm. comes back strong. Uh, this is another very strong business uh, that can survive anything. People are always going to go back to McDonald's. Great five-year track record of the stock. Solid dividend, as mentioned, almost 2.5% dividend. Uh, PE is not out of control. This business is going to survive whatever this economy throws at it. Uh, I think with a little bit of weakness in here, it's definitely a good long-term purchase. Yeah, Jeff, McDonald's? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think there are some catalysts kind of on either side, whether the virus persists and there are still some issues there or whether you get a reopening. You know, I think that they have some new menu options. Internationally, there aren't as many drive throughs So when things start to reopen, I think you get a boost there. Um, but on the flip side, obviously, we know this here, um, the business is doing well because, to your point, there's digital ordering, there's drive through so they can still maintain a reasonable revenue base there. But I'll just reiterate what the other two guys said because I totally agree. In my notes, I put no man's land, and that's really where the stock has been trading. So I would either look for that move lower that we're talking about, you know, right around 200, maybe a little bit lower, or a decisive breakout um, to the upside before I'd want to really make a move one way or the other in this name. All right. We're just getting started here on this bonus hour of Fast Money. Bitcoin on an absolute tear this year, hitting a fresh all-time high today. Will the boom continue? Plus, what's your chip choice for the new year? We'll slide into the semi-space to find out. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to a bonus hour of Fast Money. Bitcoin hitting a fresh all-time high today. Let's get to a crypto question. My name is Cheng from New Jersey. My question is about Bitcoin. In light of the fact that the Fed and the central banks around the world are keeping interest rates near zero and printing dollars to record highs, does it make sense to think about Bitcoin as a long-term investment for the next five to 10 years? To help us break this one down, let's bring in our own crypto baller, Brian Kelly. BK, you even put a jacket on for us for this Bitcoin conversation. Um, Chang in New Jersey. Really, it's really it's important. important. Extremely important. Um, Chang in New Jersey had mentioned yes. dollar. 
debasement, which has been a huge force this particular year. Um, I'm wondering, uh, is that going to be another force next year? Yeah, I think it is. I think that's a, a great point that, that he brought up is that, I mean, that this is the exact environment that Bitcoin was designed and created for. Every central bank in the world is printing money. No central bank wants a strong currency. In fact, the European Central Bank uh, today came out and said, listen, we're watching the euro very closely. We don't like it this strong. Last week, the Bank of Japan came out and said 100 US dollar yen is where they're going to draw the line in the sand. We don't want the yen to be any stronger. I would imagine the British pound is probably next on that list. So if you go across the world, you're looking at every single country in the world wants a weaker currency. So how do you short all fiat currencies? You buy Bitcoin. All right. So I'm guessing that you're going to say, yes, it is a good investment over the long term, five to 10 years. How about the shorter term, Brian? Um, what are you seeing in terms of that? We've seen such yeah. an astronomical <laughs> run at this point. Yeah. So you, yeah, you're going to ask me the tough questions. The, the, the shorter term is a little more difficult, I'll, I'll have to say. So one of the biggest indicators that I look at is how many addresses are being able being created on the Bitcoin network and then how much the market's implying the ad, uh, how many addresses there should be. It's kind of like MAUs or um, you know, monthly active users for Bitcoin or Facebook. And where we are right now is the market is pricing in almost close to 30% growth in addresses. And addresses are really only growing at about 5%. So when we get to those levels, for me, it's a caution zone. Doesn't mean that we can't rip to 30,000 or 35,000. It just means if you're getting in here, you have to understand that Bitcoin is extremely volatile and it could drop down to 20,000 uh, within a couple days. So I think long run, it's, it's, a no, it's a relative no-brainer, as no-brainer as you get in the markets. And in the short run, just understand it's volatile. And if you buy here, you know, a lot of the easy money has been made in the short term. Super quick question, and that is Ripple. Um, it's being delisted. Coinbase mm -hmm. is, is taking it off its exchange starting in January. And I'm wondering, does that money go into Bitcoin? Are we sh in a very short in the very short term? Do we see a little bit of a bounce because of that? I think you could be. You could see some of that money going in there. Um, most of the selling in Ripple has been done. I mean, it just mm -hmm. got destroyed over the last several days. I believe there's only one U.S. exchange left. I think I think if the, it's Kraken that still quotes it, mm -hmm. but I would expect at some point that to come off. And yeah, you know, when you're selling Ripple, you're either selling into U.S. dollar or you're selling into Bitcoin, which effectively means you're buying Bitcoin. Yeah. BK, always good to see you. Enjoy that fire behind you. I'm Brian Kelly. Oh, always good to be here. <laughs> um, James McDonald, quickly, you are also on the Bitcoin train. What do you see shorter term? Wow, shorter term. How can I think about the shorter term when BK just said it's a no-brainer long term? That's a powerful statement from a very wise man. This is a dangerous asset class. It's a dangerous instrument. I recommend that people don't hone in on Bitcoin, but hone in on crypto in this universe. I like BITW. It's the first index fund for crypto. It holds a ton of Bitcoin, but it will also do a market cap weighted balancing of other currencies, and it will remove problems like we saw with Ripple. Automatically kicked out Ripple, brought in something else. 
Uh, I think Bitcoin is as exciting as it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's equally dangerous and unpredictable. And I like an index approach to this with BITW. But I agree with BK that it's got too much interest long term to ignore. But in the short term, best way to de-risk is to diversify. All right. Coming up, calling all gamers. Will the red hot rally in these names continue? Those trades next. Plus, with the release of the stimulus checks, will we see a pop in day trader favorites like Tesla and Apple? We'll answer that question a little bit later on. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to this bonus hour of Fast Money. We are powering on with a hot video game stock question. What up, squad? Thanks for having me on. I had a question on Activision Blizzard. That's A-T-V-I. Now, I bought the stock on the dip pretty much a month ago, and it's been ripping ever since. I'm up 18% overall. But my boys have been on deployment at Call of Duty since March. So I had a question. Is this a buy, a hold, or a sell? Thanks so much. Before we answer Travis, let's get to Josh Lifton on the outlook for video game stocks in the new year. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, no industry benefited more from the pandemic and the lockdowns than video games. Global video game revenue, according to IDC, is expected to surge 19% this year to finish at a whopping $205 billion. And just to put that number in context, PwC estimates that North American sports, which of course got hit by the pandemic, will bring in about $76 billion. So what about 2021? I caught up with IDC's Lewis Ward. He expects some deceleration next year as COVID-19 vaccines are distributed and people can once again enjoy traditional forms of entertainment like live sports and movie theaters. But he says this is going to be a gradual rollout. Bottom line, he does not expect to see any real deceleration until 2022 and how much at that point he says still an unknown but for next year there are tailwinds for this industry he argues like those new consoles from sony and microsoft now those can be hard to find right now but supply is expected to start catching up with demand in the second quarter mobile gaming is actually the biggest part of the video game market lewis ward says that will grow in 2021 too though he doesn't think as fast as 2020 all three of the big publicly traded U.S. video game publishers, so Activision, EA, Take-Two, easily outperforming the market this year. I spoke with MKM's Eric Handler. He especially does like Activision here. It isn't cheap, but it reflects the success they have had, he says, with increasing engagement and spending. Call of Duty Mobile recently launching in China. More new mobile games are on the way in the spring. And later next year, the highly anticipated Diablo Immortal is expected. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton. So back to Travis's question. Buy, sell, or hold Activision, Jeff? Well, first of all, I want whatever Travis has got because <laughs> that energy was awesome. Um, but I like Activision. You know, I, I think the, the question is you've seen a huge spike, so is it over as we start to see some of this reopening? And I tend to think that there's still some gas left in the tank, honestly. You know, even in September, if you look at the hours players were spending on the different platforms, it was still seven times back to that baseline level. And I also think that, you know, they've attracted new users and that'll probably remain sticky for some time. We just mentioned the slate of new content they have coming down the pike. So I think there's good reason to believe that some of this uptick they've seen can stick. Um, you just had a breakout above 86, which I like. So I, I would continue to buy the stock here. If we ever go back to work, James, physically, that is, we're all working in some capacity somewhere, I guess. Um, will people have time to game? As much time. Certainly some will continue gaming, but some won't. 
That's true. I think this company has been extraordinarily successful for a very long time, and demand begets more innovation and more creativity. Uh, I think they take the tailwind from this COVID situation, the popularity. You just saw the numbers, uh, you know, almost uh, uh, triple the revenues in this environment. Uh, eyes are going to be open. More engineers are going to go to work, and I think that this company continues to go higher. I think that they're going to come out with some amazing games on platforms, and we haven't even seen the true potential of data visualization yet across uh, 5G. I think this company is a good long-term buy. I would hold on to your profits. All right, let's get to another gaming question. Hi, Jimmy from San Diego here. Thank you for taking my question on GameStop today. I got into GameStop in June of this year in anticipation of the next release of Gaming Councils in November. Is there still some upside to GameStop or should I pull my profits now? Mike, this has been one where people have written this stock off, this retail off for so long, and yet here we are up 216% year to date. Yeah, I think this is a situation, you know, kind of where we you, buyer beware. You know, what are you really buying here? So the theme was the right one. I think the gist of why he bought the stock originally, which is that you had a, basically a new cycle uh, of gaming consoles coming out, both with the new Xbox and the new PlayStation 5. Demand for those has been essentially off the charts. And so this was a really well-timed trade and a smart one. But I would actually be taking profits here because GameStop in particular, unlike Activision, unlike the gaming companies, they... Part of their business is, is probably impaired permanently. I mean, they have a bricks-and-mortar business. They have a reselling business. Increasingly, a lot of the gaming is going to be digital. I think the, game, uh, you know, the gaming software companies are going to continue to monetize really, really effectively. But I don't think that's as clear for GameStop stores. So I, I would be a seller. You know, Jeff, Josh Lipton in his report mentioned the rise of mobile gaming and the popularity of that. That doesn't necessarily mean good things for GameStop. No, not necessarily. And this was a company that was basically left for dead. But I, I do think they're trying to work their way into digital and they're doing it somewhat successfully. They have that agreement with Microsoft. Um, they are the primary beneficiary of some of these new game consoles. So I think that will help. And I, I generally just think the worst is behind them. They had that big pop. It was a lot of short covering. But you have to remember, we're, we're still about 50% of where the stock was uh, when it was at an all-time high. So I think given the pivot they're making in their business and some of the tailwinds they have, I do believe you could have more upside in the name from here. James, where do you stand on GME? It's dangerous. Uh, I like the positioning in the industry, but I don't like the stock. I don't like the company. I, I think we're uh, looking at potentially a continuation of the five-year trend. Uh, before we had this arc in the last six months. Just kind of dangerous here at 20. Makes more sense at 10, 7 bucks than it does here at uh, almost 20 bucks. All right. Coming up, we are chipping away at a selection of semis. Which of these stocks should you bet on to take your portfolio higher? We'll tackle that next. Plus, this hot home improvement trade is up big since the March lows, but do the gains keep building from here? The traders will break that down when this bonus hour fast returns. Welcome back to this bonus hour of Fast Money. Our next question is plugging into the surging semiconductor space. Hey, what's up, Fast Money team? Quick question. Semiconductor stocks. What do you think? Taiwan Semiconductor or NVIDIA? Thoughts? Thanks. Very succinct. James, what do you tell him? 
If I'm initiating a position here, I'm going to go with Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, they've got a 34 PE versus NVIDIA's uh, is over double that at 85. Both have a huge amount of upside, uh, but the cheaper stock is um, Taiwan Semiconductor. I think it has equal opportunity to grow, 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 uh, as NVIDIA does, but you want to profit, 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 um, and this one is half as expensive here uh, with a similar trajectory in terms of its outlook. So I like Taiwan Semiconductor. Mike, forced to choose which one? I'd actually go with NVIDIA. I mean, so NVIDIA is making a high-end product that everybody wants. They actually can't get enough of them built at the moment. The, uh, the 3090 chips, for example, $1,500, and you can't find these things in stock. I mean, they're basically in the right business at the right time. I mean, we have a big change, essentially, in demands for the kinds of GPUs that they're producing. Uh, so I realize this company is uh, pretty expensive. It seems like it is sort of leveled off here, and that might be poising actually for a move higher, despite the high valuation already. Jeff, break the tie. <laughs> Taiwan Semi or NVIDIA? Yeah, exactly. I'll step in here. I'm going to go with Taiwan Semi. You know, I'll, maybe I'll coin a new phrase here. It, it, the new GARP, it's growth at a relatively reasonable price. And I think that's where you are with semis in general. I think that's where you are with Taiwan Semi. You know, you have NVIDIA as, as a customer. You have huge volumes from Apple, some benefit from the trials and tribulations of Intel, and, and they continue to post good results. I think that's evidence from, from the last quarter. And I think with Taiwan Semi, you have success with some of these other companies. You have success with Taiwan Semi as well. And as James pointed out, that gap in forward PE continues to widen between Taiwan Semi and NVIDIA. So I'd stick with Taiwan Semi for now. All right. Let's stick with tech for this next one. Hi, this is Mike in Texas. Our kids are in their teens and 20s now, and they're interested in making purchases within their Roth IRAs. They've been looking at companies like NVIDIA, Adobe, PayPal, Microsoft, and Salesforce, to name a few. But like many young investors, the prices of these stocks individually is pretty high. So we were thinking of an exchange-traded fund like the XLK, which is currently trading in the neighborhood of about $129 per share. Um, and I think this would be a great way of not only uh, getting exposure to the names I just mentioned, but also to the sector itself. So we thank you for taking our question today, and we wish you all the best of health and eagerly await your reply. Thank you. Same to you, Mike in Texas. Uh, Jeff Mills, I think it was good that Mike had mentioned the context in which this investment is being made. It's for kids. It's for kids in, te in their te teens and 20s. So what do you tell him? Yeah, 100%. The context is key with a question like that. And, and it's hard right now because when you're looking within tech, I think trying to pick the winners and losers can be difficult because in a lot of these names, you have certain expectations that are baked in. And to try to figure out what's actually going to come to fruition over the long term, given the current valuations, is difficult. But obviously, you see a lot of secular growth and things that are going to be with us for a very long time. So for an investment like that that's going to be held for many, many years, if not decades, I think getting broad exposure is, is probably the way to go. Yeah, there's broad exposure. And not to confuse things even further, there's, there are also sub ETFs within technology, Mike, and I'm wondering if, if maybe you would advise Mike to look into, for instance, there's a semiconductor ETF or a software ETF or a cyber ETF, or is that too specialized? 
Uh, it might be a little bit specialized. The nice thing about XLK, of course, is that because it's broader and because it ends up being a little bit cap-weighted, you will catch the winners. That's one of the sort of the critical elements of indexing besides diversification. One thing I would point out, though, of course, is that XLK is heavily concentrated. I mean, the top three stocks represent 50% of it, Visa, Microsoft, and, and Apple. And Apple and Microsoft are actually close to 45% all alone. Uh, but it is a way to get exposure to names like NVIDIA, which we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, obviously trading at a high multiple right now and, and has been on quite a tear. Um, but this way you'll be sure to catch the winners and your exposure to them will increase as they continue to do well. James, Mike makes a good point in terms of what the top holdings are and maybe somebody looking for exposure to tech. I mean, there are other ways to do it, too, in terms of cues. There are other ETFs which will give you another slice of technology. Just when I thought I had a good pick, you came in and mentioned the Q's, Mel. That's a great one. I think that's probably a better pick than I was going to go with. Uh, I like the innovation ETF from the ARC family. Uh, ARK, type in any letter, you're going to see where disruption is happening, whether it be genomics, whether it be vehicles, whether it be financial uh, technology, or, or just um, uh, disruptors in general tech. But the Q's are a really good place to be. Also, the NASDAQ 100 is always going to hold a broad basket of the most powerful players um, pretty well diversified if you're going to be in tech. And I think, you know, the Qs may outperform over the long term some of these innovation ETFs and disruptors that I mentioned. By the good, way, that, that, that yeah. Good, good interjection there, Mel. <laughs> that ARK Innovation ETF is, that's one of the best performing non-leverage ETFs of this year. Um, so that's an interesting one. Coming up, we've got a few more of your questions still left to answer. So don't go anywhere because we're running right into this next name. And the traders will break down if you should lace up or leave this one behind. We are back in two. Welcome back to this bonus hour, Fast Money. With stimulus checks officially rolling out, we thought we'd end the show with a few questions on what people may do with that extra cash. Hey guys, this is Ryan from Boston. Hope you're doing well and had a festive and safe holiday season. Just had a question for you on your 2021 Q1 outlook. With the popularity of Robinhood and, and young investors um, on the rise, do you think the effect of the stimulus checks um, should they be approved, will prop up name brands like Tesla and Apple and stuff like that moving into the new year? Um, would love to know your thoughts. Thanks. I think that's a good question because we saw that first round of checks, Jeff, really fuel that surge in retail trading that we saw earlier in the year. Um, is that going to hold true this time around? Yeah, you know, the, the honest answer is I don't know for sure. And with, with $600 and the amount of people that will actually use it to trade, you wonder about the volume and whether that will actually move these share prices or not. And I certainly wouldn't be buying the names based on speculation that that's what's going to drive these stocks higher. You know, when I think about the stimulus, I try to think about it from more of a macro standpoint. Uh, you know, we've talked about this a number of times, but, you know, sort of bridging the economic gap between today and the future and the fuel that that may add to some of this cyclical rotation that we've seen uh, within the market. So I, I think that sort of macro thesis is more important to me as it relates to the stimulus. Uh, just to touch on Tesla specifically, you know, I think the chart's very interesting. This is a, a report that our buddy Carter Worth put out a couple of weeks ago. But if you look at the stock this year, it's a very repeatable pattern where you get a pop and then a consolidation and a pop and a consolidation. This is the fourth time that we've seen this big pop. So I would not be surprised to see a consolidation over the next number of months. So I wouldn't be chasing the stock higher here. 
All right. Um, you know, there's a New York Times article just today saying that most people, most Americans will actually save that six hundred dollars uh, in stimulus this time around. So things may may pan out differently. But to Jeff's point, James, take a look at the stocks themselves. Do you like any of these names? Well, um, without having a crystal ball, I anticipate that the challenges that people experience this year are unprecedented. And based on those challenges, there's going to be tepid spending. And even if we cite the uh, uh, amazing innovations that we've seen in the democratization of investing through some of these platforms, uh, these are not experienced investors and they haven't seen uh, markets valued this high before and what happens shortly after markets are valued this high. Um, and so I would discount any activity in these big mega cap names um, from from the Robin Hood crowd. I, I will say that you cite extraordinarily strong businesses um, that can weather any storm and we'll probably see a rotation come back into them if we see pressure in the market like I expect. So I don't think that the Robin Hood trader is going to influence the market. I don't think the $600 uh, uh, check is going to influence the market. Uh, but I do think the names that you point out will probably be um, uh, heads and above the survivors of what's coming. Mike Coe, how do you feel about Apple or Tesla? Yeah, so I really agree with Jeff on Tesla. And actually, we talked about it on the last options action of the year. And I actually have a, a position on right now that is playing for that consolidation. I think people misunderstand the company sometimes. The valuation is still pretty rich, despite the fact that I think that some people are maybe discounting some of the things that they're doing, especially the supercharger network in particular, a little bit too much. But the stock has had quite a run. I mean, up 700 plus percent, $650 billion market capitalization here. And I think it's going to have to take a little bit of a breather before it goes higher. But I say that even as it hit new highs today. So you know, obviously, I thought it was going to pause a little sooner than it has. Yeah, it's defying a lot of expectations, that's for sure. Speaking of money, let's dive into the payment space with this next one. What is up, Fast Money Traders? This is Shimmy in Florida. My question is about Square and PayPal. I'd like exposure to the fintech space. I'd like exposure to one of these companies, but I'm not really sure which one. What do you guys think? I think this is the first time a Shimmy has uh, asked a question of us on the show. Mike, what do you tell Shimmy in Florida? Uh, I would go with PayPal here. I mean, first of all, they're dominant in the payment space. I mean, they had secular tailwinds and everything going into this year. And then, of course, obviously the increase in e-commerce has proven to be a big strength for them. But this isn't a situation where that necessarily reverses on the back end of this. So, I mean, they've, they've obviously done some additional things on the technology front to sort of broaden their exposure. And I think they're going to continue to see good continued growth over 20 percent on the top line, probably over the course of the next couple of years. So when you take a look at their valuation, take that in context. Bear in mind, though, high beta names. So if we do get, say, a 10% setback, this is one of those high-flying names that's likely to also suffer. Shimmy was saying that he wanted exposure in fintech. And you can think about fintech, Shimmy, more broadly if you choose to. Visa, for instance, was a new record today. Jeff, how do you think about fintech and getting exposure? Yeah, you know, I, I like a stock like Visa perhaps a little bit more. I think PayPal and Square have huge tailwinds. Um, I think there, there's massive growth to be had in the digital wallet. They're going to be doing all sorts of things with bill pay, and um, there, there's going to be a ton of services offered through those types of companies. And so it's not that they're not good companies. Um, it's not that they're not going to grow at a tremendous rate. I, I've just made this point a number of times. You just get to a point where expectations don't necessarily align with valuation. So I struggle a little bit in that space versus a visa where I think you might have a little bit more upside. Yeah, James? 
Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, Visa's really strong. They've got a strong earnings track record, and you know they're doing some things. They uh, uh, recently had an acquisition. Uh, they're moving to digital payments. They got new bets in fintech and crypto. Um, but I still like PayPal better. I think that um, when we talk about Square, Square is one of my summer loves. I love this business for what it could do for the pandemic. Um, but here at you know a uh, 300 plus PE, 360 plus PE. Farewell, my summer love, right? I want to go to PayPal over Visa because I think PayPal can be more nimble uh, in, in adopting things and putting them into consumers' hands uh, and then monetizing it. I like PayPal's upside uh, between the two of Square. And then with Visa, I think that Visa is a strong contender, but I still like PayPal better. I think there can be a little bit more entrepreneurial. There's a bit of a, a Bitcoin um push also within PayPal. Moving on with pending home sales declining for a third straight month, let's turn to a question on a home improvement stock. Hey, Fast Money. John from Los Angeles here. I have two questions for you guys. I bought lows during the no pun intended March lows. And the first is what the outlook for the security might be. And two, whether I should keep it or let it go. I am up a fair amount since March. So just looking for some advice. Thanks so much. James, what do you tell John? Best pun of the year, actually. Um, you got to sell it here. You know, if you bought in March lows, you're not going to get a better return than that going forward. We've seen uh, consecutive months of declines in new home sales, and all those prints are starting to add up into a picture that's a little bit gloomier than we saw coming into the third, fourth quarter. Uh, lows is going to be okay, uh, but based on your position now, I think that there's more risk to the downside than it's worth taking for any potential gains that might eke out over the next couple of months. We're starting to see a deceleration in activity in the construction of homes and the purchase of homes, uh, and so that is kind of going to be something that's going to come out of the sales of Lowe's, and so I would uh, get out. There's also fixing up of homes, though. <laughs> Jeff, what's your take? Yeah, Lowe's is a stock that we, we've liked for a while. We continue to hold it, but I think to James's point, you know, if this is something you've held from the March bottom, then I think you, you, you can't go wrong taking a profit here. There's, there's no question. But I, I do still like having some exposure to your point, Mel. You know, not necessarily uh, the builders or home sales, but people fixing up their homes. I think that will probably continue to some degree. You know, the consumer is, is in better shape than I think we give them credit for sometimes. I think they're in this unusual position coming out of a recession where they spent less, but incomes were actually up because of the fiscal stimulus. So I think there's still going to be money spent in this area. And I do like Lowe's versus Home Depot. This valuation gap that has opened up between the two is in favor of Lowe's. So we still continue to hold the stock here. All right. You know what? we got time for one final question of the night. Let's run right into a question on Nike as a sneaker company launched their first self-lacing Air Jordans today. Hey, this is Chris from Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Happy New Year's to my man Jimmy Chill and the Fast Money team. My question is regarding Nike. I purchased the shares prior to the last earnings report. The stock did a quick pop to 147 and has moved sideways since. The analysts have raised price targets and upgrades. However, the stock hasn't performed in the way you think it would. In the famous words of my man Guy Adami, should I wrap it or scrap it? <laughs> People love our games. Uh, Jeff, what do you tell them? Well, look, I, the stock's trading 30% above its 200-day right now, so I definitely think you could get some consolidation and possibly get back in at a lower price. So if you're trading it, I would keep that in mind. But this is a company that's getting a lot right. You know, digital sales in the second quarter were up 84%. Digital sales are a lot more profitable than when they're moving merchandise wholesale. 
Um, and then another thing that caught my eye were inventories are actually down 2% from the same point last year. So talking about some evidence of strong demand, I, I think it's there. Uh, and to my point earlier, the consumer continues to be in reasonably good shape uh, given the recession that we're trying to work our way out of. So longer term, I actually still like Nike. And China's good. And the pandemic for China is in the rearview uh, mirror, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, Nike is one of these companies that's been executing every target they've set for themselves. They seem to be exceeding it. My son just got his custom designed pair of Nikes today. There's a lot of demand, I think, for the product. It's the valuation and just where the market is that makes me a little bit troubled. Long term, I like it. But right here, I think we're it's a tough entry point for sure. I don't know about the self-lacing shoe. It sounds kind of lazy to me, but, uh, you know. To each his own. Uh, thanks, traders, for all your input tonight. Jeff Mills, Mike Co., James McDonald. Thank you out there for watching this special edition of Fast Money. We'll be back here tomorrow, 5 to 7, and we will continue taking your questions, so do send them in on Twitter. Meantime, stay tuned. The news is up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.